classical Hollywood narrative suggests that a film needs to establish the protagonist and her goals inside the first 10 minutes. The announcement of that goal then ignites the plot's engine, which then drives the film across three acts, each one precipitated by a plot point that impacts the heroine's journey before finally culminating in a climactic event that closes off all narrative strands. However, there is another important event that is all too often overlooked, and that is the midpoint. The midpoint serves as the fulcrum around which the entire plot and corresponding character arcs rotate. Without the rotating event, the structure would collapse, a clear conclusion would not occur, and whatever happened at the end wouldn't make any dramatic sense. What the midpoint does is sling the story around into a new direction, which not only leads us to, but also foreshadows the story's climax. Simply put, the midpoint is half the ending. Consider James Cameron's Titanic. 90 minutes into that film's three-hour running time, Rose commits herself to Jack, and no sooner has she made that declaration that the great ship collides with the iceberg. Take those rotating events out of the story, and by the end, the ship would arrive safely in New York, Rose merrily disembarking with her fiancé Cal, with Jack languishing somewhere in steerage. Without such an impactful rotating moment, most audiences would leave the theatre wondering what all the fuss was about. Look, I know what you must be thinking. Poor little rich girl. What does she know about misery? No. No, it's not what I was thinking. What I was thinking was, what could have happened to this girl to make her think she had no way out? Premiering at the Cannes Film Festival in 1991, Krzysztof Kieślowski's The Double Life of Veronique also has a rotating moment. So rotating, in fact, that Kieślowski's frequent cinematographer, Slavomir Idzak, went so far as to place the camera on a circular track, as if to mark out not just the time, but also the place where a young woman's life spun off into a new direction. But for all that precise rotation, the event does not occur halfway through the picture. It happens after barely 15 minutes, which might make you think that the event ignites the plot. Only it doesn't, which proves that this moment provides but two examples of how Kieślowski, a quintessential European auteur, told stories in a way completely independently of the classical Hollywood narrative structure. I say this because many people unsure of what Kieślowski was trying to do find the film to be vague in its declaration, confused in its plotting, and pretentious in execution. So perhaps if we were to imagine how Hollywood would have treated the story, we can get a better insight into the film. And hopefully, rather than being vague, confusing and pretentious, we will see it for the unique, original and deeply meaningful film it is. Let us begin with the rotating moment. It occurs when Veronica, a young Polish soprano singer, played by Irene Jacob, goes to rehearse with a choir in Krakow. Happy with how the rehearsal went, Veronica wanders dreamily through the city's main market square, only to find herself slap-bang in the middle of a political rally. As the protesters race about, Veronica catches sight of a young woman. She looks identical to Veronica. She has the same face, is the same height, and wears her same coloured hair at the same length. 
that she is also played by Irene Jacob puts an end to the question as to who she might be, while simultaneously opening up the question as to whom she might be. But the young woman, oblivious to being looked at, is not part of the protest rally, but is a French tourist. She eagerly takes photographs and then gets on the bus. With the camera back on Veronica, she looks as if she is having an out-of-body experience, as if she were looking at her own self, doing something she would otherwise not be doing. Then comes Idzak's circular tracking shot, with the camera positioned so it simulates the bus's path as it arcs across the square. Veronica looks directly into the lens, but the woman does not notice her, and instead the bus drives out of the square. If this were a Hollywood movie, Veronica would be so intrigued, she would spend the rest of the movie looking for the other woman. But this is not a Hollywood film, so we need to look at it differently. Kishlowski was never concerned with Sidfield's method of plot point A leading to pinch one and then to the midpoint. He didn't even structure things in accordance with Aristotle's laws of cause and effect. Instead, Kishlowski strung events together by means of coincidence and synchronicity. Which means we have to be on the lookout for visual echoes, sonic associations and emotional reverberations. In terms of visual echoes, besides the two characters being played by Jacob, we have the presence of a Polish conductor and a French puppeteer who seem to, choose your word, control, manipulate or guide Veronica slash Veronique through her life, lives. Sometimes both women are at the end of a string, yet at others they are pulling on a string or unspooling the tape from a cassette. It is through these unexpected actions, not Aristotle's method of cause and effect, that Kishlowski suggests a connection between the events in the story. Which is why, after having seen her double in the main market square, Veronica does not go in pursuit of her. Instead, she performs in a concert, where she collapses and dies. Which means, in terms of emotional reverberation, immediately after Veronica's death in Poland, we first meet Veronique in Paris, where she's experiencing an inexplicable and overwhelming sense of sadness this despite being in her lover's arms. Finally, in terms of sound association, where Veronica was a student of music in Poland, in France, Veronique is a music teacher. But capping it all, with the tragic event of Veronica's death, Kishlowski and his co-writer Krzysztof Piechowicz abort any possibility of the two women ever meeting, and thus explaining their identical appearance. A rational, if completely cliched explanation would be that they were twins separated at birth. Which is what Shakespeare conjured up with his comedy, Twelfth Night. Do I stand there? I never had a brother. Nor can there be that deity in my nature of here and everywhere. I had a sister, whom the blind waves and surges have devoured. Of charity, what kin are you to me? What countryman, what name, what parentage? Of Messaline. Sebastian was my father. Such a Sebastian was my brother too. But with Veronica dead and the tourist not even aware of her existence, Kishlowski defies expectation and in so doing, runs the risk of clouding motivations for the rest of his film. So what is he doing? 
Since Kishlovsky named the film The Double Life of Veronique, could the woman taking photographs be Veronica's doppelganger? Doppelgangers, doubles, lookalikes. Immediately, that conjures up a sinister resonance. Consider the stories by Edgar Allan Poe, Fyodor Dostoevsky and Robert Louis Stevenson. In 1839, Poe wrote William Wilson, a short tragic tale of a young boy who finds his perfect resemblance in school and is stalked by it all the way into adulthood. He resolves that the only way to escape is to murder his double. Similarly, seven years later, Dostoevsky wrote The Double, where Galyatkin, a meagre government clerk, is tormented by a character of the same name to the point of descending into madness. And perhaps most famous of all, in 1886, Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where a respectable Victorian gentleman becomes a psychotic murderer when he falls victim to his own ambition by imbibing his own scientifically concocted serum. I'm sorry, sir, but I, I heard an odd noise and a strange voice. I thought something was happening, sir. No, 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 it's quite all right, Paul. Uh, uh, there was someone here, uh, a friend of mine, a, a Mr. Hyde. I let him out the back door. But again, Kishlovsky is not interested in such generic complications. By preventing the two women ever meeting, Kishlovsky is refusing the possibility of a rational answer to the story's questions, which means he is interested in something irrational, maybe supernatural, something like Hitchcock's Vertigo, which in a way is a ghost story. A young woman is obsessed with the spirit of her great-grandmother She dies, and then the story takes up with another woman who looks very like her. Killing off the female lead is something Hitchcock did again in Psycho, and with that step, we can see how easily it would be for a screenwriter to take Kishlovsky's premise and move it into the realm of horror. Which could result in a film where the spirit of the dead Veronica invades the life of the woman on the bus. So let's reconsider the possibilities of the long-lost sibling. Remember this. Veronica saw her double at a political protest. So let's make it a political thriller, where Veronica's innocent search for the woman uncovers a conspiracy where she was the result of a cloning experiment. Then he hurt what was theoretically possible that I could create one day, not his son, not even a carbon copy, but another original. He was thrilled by the idea, the right Hitler, for the right future. A Hitler tailor-made for the 1980s, 90s, 2000. Let us move away from the paranoid, the supernatural and political, and into the surreal. The nearest thing Hollywood has come to Kishlovsky's film is David Lynch's Lost Highway. Released some six years after The Double Life of Veronique, Lynch's film begins by focusing on a musician, Fred Madison, who is soon convicted of murder. However, while in prison, Fred disappears from his jail cell and an entirely different man, Pete Dayton, is found in his place. Further confounding events, after he is released, Pete begins a relationship with a woman named Alice, who bears an uncanny resemblance to Fred's wife, Renee, both of whom are played by Patricia Arquette. Like Kishlovsky, Lynch is not interested in pursuing a rational explanation, which frustrates a lot of audiences. In that way, both films resemble on the surface at least some works by another great auteur, Michelangelo Antonioni. Specifically, La Ventura, where a woman goes missing, 
only for her friends to lose any interest in ever finding her. And later, the passenger, in which a war correspondent, tries to escape his career in marriage by assuming the identity of a dead man. Can I ask you one question now? One you can, yes. Only one, always the same. What are you running away from? So, Kishlovsky's premise could easily have fallen back on generic convention. Consider the wide variety of magical, surreal and conspiratorial films about doppelgangers, doubles and lookalikes. Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be and Akira Kurosawa's Kagamusha. Then you have characters consumed by alter egos, such as George Cukor's A Double Life, Ingmar Bergman's Persona and David Fincher's Fight Club, as well as twins in Brian De Palma's Sisters, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers and Christopher Nolan's The Prestige not to mention mutants in the numerous versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And finally, clones in Harold Ramis's Multiplicity, James Cameron's Avatar, and Duncan Jones's Moon. They locked all the exits. Who's looking after the harvesters? Harvesters are fine. It's the fact that I'm here talking to a clone that's slightly troubling. <laughs> I'm not a clone. I'm not a clone. You're the clone. Okay, Sam. You're not a clone. Hollywood plots obediently remain within the logic of the created universes. Kishlovsky does not do that. He neither declares the logic of the plot, nor does he remain within the bounds of reality. Which leaves the film with one final genre, and that is the poetic. Here to help explain is Yvonne Jacob, being interviewed in 2017 at Columbia University by film historian Annette Insdorf. It was the first time he was going to do a film with a co-production uh, with uh, Western Europe. So he imagined the story of these two women, one in Poland, one in France. I had to learn Polish for the Polish part. That was kind of hard. And also I had to learn these, uh, these songs. So another preparation was that um, Christophe told me, okay, this, this film is going to be about uh, intuitions, about loneliness, about how sometimes you are alone but you feel full, and sometimes you are alone and you feel completely uh, at a loss. And so uh, he said, okay, this is a film that could be a poetic film, we could say, because it's not a strong narrative. But uh, he said, so in order to approach a poetic film, we have to be very concrete. Insdorf has been lecturing at Columbia University for over 30 years and is the author of several highly regarded books, the most pertinent being Double Lives, Second Chances, the cinema of Krzysztof Koszlowski. Another of her titles is Cinematic Overtures, How to Read Opening Scenes. And here she is in 2017 addressing the Film Society of Lincoln Centre. Traditional movies begin with an establishing shot, something that indicates the time, the place, and whose story we're going to be following. Well, I'm more interested on the movies that undermine our complacency as moviegoers. They make us aware not only of what is being revealed, but what is being concealed. So let us now consider how Koslowski opened his film. We are treated to an image of the sky and the earth. Only the sky and the earth have swapped places. The image is seen by Veronica as a child, held upside down by her mother. Now I wouldn't go so far as to say that you can condense the meaning of the film to that one shot. 
but it does function as Insdor suggests. Obviously, things will not be as they appear, and just as importantly, we should perhaps try looking at the film as a child does the world, without any preconceived notions and expectations. Watch it with an open mind. But here is the thing, I have tried doing that, and I simply cannot escape the immediate impression I made when I first saw the film. Early on, a statue of Lenin is driven down a street. Now the film was released in 1991, the same year that saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, which meant the end of the Warsaw Pact. Two years earlier, the Berlin Wall had come down, and suddenly, Europe's borders were open as they had never been open in decades. Could the film be as simple as this? The freedom to move from one state to another. <laughs>